divide them and maybe think that there are different things being talked about here, but it's, it's one continuous theme uh, that Jesus is teaching his disciples here. And he began in, in uh, remember as we read this, chapter and verse and all of that was added later on. So there was, not, there was no such thing. Jesus wasn't talking. He said, okay, that ends chapter 16. Now we're going to begin chapter 17. That, that was not the case. Uh, chapter and verse was added many, many, many centuries later for, for our benefit in just learning and studying and memorizing the Scriptures. And so sometimes it's, it's very helpful. I would say most of the time it's very helpful, but we need to be careful as we read and study the Scripture that we don't break context just because there's a big 17 there. And we went from a 46 to a 1. Uh, we need to maintain the context based on what the Scripture, what, what is written in the original context, not just in the numbers. Amen? You guys tracking with me here? So, in Luke 17, for instance, uh, when he's talking to his disciples... Uh, in all of this, um, and we'll see this more clearly in, in, even in Luke, in, in Matthew 18, uh, this, de- Jesus is dealing with some things that are in the hearts of his disciples that he knew were there. And he's getting close to his crucifixion, and he knows that his earthly ministry is coming to an end, and he's preparing his disciples for his departure and for them to begin to do what they were commissioned to do, which was to go into all the nations and preach the gospel and teach and make disciples. And so he's talking about offenses here, and, and, and we looked at this, 17 verse 1, it's impossible that no offenses should come. So this is the context. He's talking about offenses and sins or offenses that are committed against other people. And he, he's talking about little ones and uh, this goes with Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus brings a child, he calls a child into their midst and he says, unless you become, unless you humble yourself as one of these little ones. And so this term for little ones, it is literally speaking of children, but we see when Jesus is saying to his disciples, you must become like one of these little ones, you must humble yourself as one of these little ones. He's not telling his disciples you need to become little children any more than he was telling Nicodemus you have to enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born again. So we need to understand in context what Jesus is speaking about here. And so he goes on down in, 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 these, in these verses. He warns them, take heed of themselves, uh, that, they don't, um, that they don't offend one of these little ones and cause them to stumble. And then in verse 4, I'm, I'm setting up for us coming down here to verse 10 or verse 7 where we're going to begin. In verse 4, Jesus makes this statement, If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the response of the apostles was this, Lord, increase our faith. God, how, how can you expect us to do this? Because the conventional wisdom was, uh, that's not what we do. And Jesus is saying, look, as often as he is willing to repent, you need to be willing to forgive. And so the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. And in response to that cry, Lord, increase our faith, now we go to this next section 
that is not a different subject. It's the very same subject. Lord, increase our faith. And what was the Lord's response? And the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is talking about what? He's talking about forgiveness. And he's talking about restoration. And he's saying, as often as need be, you need to offer forgiveness. And they said, Lord, increase our faith. And he said, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mulberry tree here to be pulled up and planted into the sea. The point of faith Jesus is talking about here is is our forgiveness, our ability to extend forgiveness. Well, why are we able to extend forgiveness? Well, Matthew 6 tells us, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says, uh, he says, if you do not forgive as your Father has forgiven you, then your sins are not forgiven. If you have received forgiveness and you are unwilling to forgive, he says, your sins are not forgiven. And and we need to understand this in its context also. How can we love one another? Well, how do we love God? First John says we love God because God first loved us. So until God loves me, I can't love him. Until God pours his love, who is love? He is love. If you abide in God, you abide in love, for God is love. So biblically, though we understand love is emotional and it's an emotion, it is an emotion, and that's why uh, husbands, when your wives are sitting there watching some chick flick, they're crying and you're not. You know, these, it can be very emotional. Well, some, some of us guys do cry sometimes, you know. My kids love to sit with me when I watch a movie and, and they look over and see if dad's crying yet, you know. Because some, sometimes, you know, there's just... I mean, I'm not ashamed to say that. You know, sometimes there's just some things that, you know, they, they move you. That's the way God created us. But, but love is much more than just that emotional feeling or, you know, our heart being. It's more than that. Love is a person, and his name is Jesus. And the reason we can love God is because the person of God of uh, the person who is love, God who is love, the personified manifestation of love is Christ, right? It's because God who is love has come to reside in me. And because He now resides in me, now I can return that love to Him. And the love we're commanded to love with is not just a an emotional love. See, the difference between like Greek and English, in English we have one word, love. And love has to apply to everything. From I love ice cream to I love my wife. Well, obviously, I think it'd be fair to say that we don't love ice cream in the same way we would love our husband or our wife, right? But we use the same word. Well, in Greek they don't have, they've got different words. And there's a word called agape, and, and it's the ultimate kind of love. It's God. It's the kind of love that God loves us with. It's the kind of love that we are commanded to love others with. We're not to just love them. We're to love them in every way. 
But when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, he is purposefully not using those other Greek words for love. He's not saying just have brotherly love, just have emotional love, don't have, uh, just have sensual love. He says, no, agape one another. Have the unconditional love for one another that I have unconditionally loved you with. Well, how do we love with that kind of love? We, we do that because God has put that love in us in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. How do we forgive the very same way? Because we have been forgiven, because God has poured His forgiveness in us through Jesus Christ, and we have been forgiven. Now, we are able to also forgive as we have been forgiven. If we cannot forgive, if we will not forgive, it's the same principle. Don't tell me you love God but hate your brother because the love of God is not in you if you do that. Don't tell me that you have truly been forgiven if you cannot extend forgiveness because if you can't do it, there's a problem here. Have you received God's love? Have you received God's forgiveness? If you have, then we are commanded to give even as we have received. And so this is what Jesus is talking about here. And this is why the apostles are saying, Lord, increase our faith. And the faith to forgive begins with the faith to be saved. I can't truly forgive if I'm not truly saved. Now, I might forget, I might let it go, I might ignore, but, but we're talking about biblical forgiveness, just like a lot of people talk about love. There's a lot of people who say they love every day, but they don't love with the love of God if they do not have God who is love in their life. Do you understand? We can't define these things based on how the world defines them. We have to define them and understand them the way the Scripture reveals them to us. And so, the faith to forgive begins with the faith to be saved. Now, I don't have to work up some super, you know, powerful faith in order to be saved. Jesus is saying, look, if you will trust in me, if you'll believe in me, if you'll just have mustard seed faith, you will be saved. I mean, what greater mountain is there to be moved what greater miracle can take place than, than for us to come out of death and be translated into life, out of darkness into light? And when God does that, how does He do that? He does that through Jesus Christ. And when our sins have been forgiven, when God has extended His forgiveness to us, then now we are able to forgive others. This is what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about faith, this isn't just faith to do, you know, some miracle or get some possession. Or He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about restoration. He's talking about our relationships with one another. And then he says in verse 7, and. See, the and is important there because it's a continuation of the thought. He's not changing subjects. Well, I'm talking about little ones and millstones, and now I'm going to talk about pulling up mulberry trees and planting them in the ocean by faith, and now I'm going to talk to you about servants. No, he's talking about the same subject all the way through here. And he's using different word pictures to help us understand and to grasp and to comprehend the importance of what he is saying. 
So he says, hey, if they come to you seven times 70, I'm telling you, you shall forgive them. And the apostle said, increase our faith, Lord. You have faith as a mustard seed. You can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up and planted into the ocean. And which of you having a servant? Here's where we're going to concentrate for a little bit. And which of you having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, to that servant, when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Now, do you understand the picture here? Here is the master of the house. The master is in the house. He's got a servant that's been out working in the field all day long, doing whatever, plowing, tending sheep, feeding animals, fixing fence, doing whatever the servant does. He comes in. He said, which of you having a servant, when he comes in after working in the field all day, says to your servant, here, come, sit down and eat. You've been working hard all day. He says, no, you don't do that. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Because he's the servant. And the master of the house is the master. It sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? When we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as the guy who says, oh man, you, you are, you've been really working hard today. I am so proud of it. Look, you, you come sit down here and let me serve you. You've been working all day. Let me serve you. That, see, that's the, that's the image of Jesus we want to have, right? But this isn't, this isn't what Jesus is portraying here. And, and in our... In our feminized faith and in the feminization of the gospel and the delusion of the gospel that's taken place, because we want Jesus to be somebody that the scripture really doesn't portray him to be. We want Jesus to conform to our political beliefs. We want Jesus to conform to our cultural beliefs. We want Jesus to conform to Hollywood. We want Jesus to conform to all types of things, but the reality is Jesus cannot be anyone except who he portrays himself to be in this Bible. And this is why it is so absolutely important that we accept nothing less than the Jesus that the Scripture reveals to us. Otherwise, we will find ourselves following a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Scripture. So here comes the servant. He comes in. He says, does the master say, sit down and eat, you poor servant? He says, no, he doesn't say that at all. He says, you fix my food, fix my drink. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. You're going to do your duty. And then after you're done doing everything you are to do according to your duty, then you can sit down and eat and drink. Say, well, man, that just doesn't sound like the Jesus that, that I've been you know, conditioned to to believe in. Well, we need to read our Bibles more and learn who Jesus really is. Is this cruel? See, there's a part of us that says this is cruel and uncaring or unloving or unfair, but it's not. Do you understand this? It's not. It's really not. Now, I know in our culture today, we would say it is. And there's a way this could be cruel, 
But the way Jesus is portraying this is not in a cruel manner. It's not in an uncaring manner. And he's, he's writing this, or he's telling this, this is written for us because we need to understand the principle that Jesus is teaching here. So, he will not, but rather he will say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself, serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. He's asking a rhetorical question. He said, is that not what would happen? And the answer is, yes, that's what would happen. Because that's the relationship between a servant and a master. Verse 8, does he thank the servant because he did the things that were recommended him? Jesus answered that for us, I think not. He said, man, now that's really rude. Jesus didn't even say thank you to the servant that just worked all day out in the field and he came in and fixed his supper and set the table and fed him. He didn't even say thank you to him. Do you know there are some people who would just, I mean, they would not, they just would not, they would not serve that Jesus. They would not worship that Jesus. They would not believe that, that Jesus would really be like this. And we need to be careful. Because when we start having those types of attitudes toward what the Scripture is teaching us, we need to begin to examine our heart. Because Jesus has a point in teaching what he's teaching here. What he's saying here is it's not untrue. We may think it's unfair or kind of out there. And in our culture today, you know, we don't even have servants and masters, right? That, that doesn't exist anymore. We want to run from that. We, we don't want to use terminology like that. But really, we're just kind of living in denial in many ways when we do that. Does he thank him? He says, I think not. Verse 10, here we go. Look at this with me. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So we often think that because we have done our duty, we deserve something. Jesus is, is really pretty blunt here, isn't he? To the point that he sounds harsh and uncaring, but, but the reality is he's simply speaking truth. And, and the truth does that a lot of times, doesn't it? The truth can sound harsh, it can sound uncaring, but the point of the truth Remember the words of Jesus in John's gospel, you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Shall set you free. Truth will make you free. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. So the truth can, can do that sometimes. It can make us think God is being harsh and uncaring when he is only really trying to save us and restore us. Amen? So our duty, he says, don't say that when you have done all those things which you are commanded. He says, when you've done those things, this is what you say. Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So, what are those things? 
He says, and likewise you. Now he's talking to his disciples. He was talking about a servant and a master. Then he says, so likewise you. Now he's bringing it right back to his disciples. He says, now you guys, when you have done what is commanded of you to do, say of yourselves, we are unprofitable servants because we have simply done what we were commanded to do. What are those things that we are commanded to do? What's the context of the verse here? Jesus is saying, forgive. He's saying, be restored. He's saying, examine your heart. Be careful with your words and be careful with your actions. Well, well, how many times do I forgive? As many times as it takes. As, as, As often as they're willing to repent. Wives, how many times do you have to forgive your husbands because they forgot to do that thing that they always forget to do? And say, yeah, yeah, but they know better. How many times have you gone to someone and say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to do that? Do you get tired of people coming to you saying, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Has someone ever come to you and you have said, or if you didn't say it, you thought about saying it? I know some of you husbands and wives have. You say, that's what you always say. <laughs> I mean, we can, you know, there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to understand these things. But Jesus is really talking about something that's really very, very important here. He's talking about our willingness and our ability to forgive, to be restored, to understand that that what we do matters. He says, and likewise, so likewise you, when you have done all those things. What things? Uh, I won't go back over last week's sermon, but we go back and we, we, we look at what we were commanded to do here. So... Our duty is humility. Our duty is rebuke. Our duty is repentance. Our duty is forgiveness. All of this because our duty is reconciliation and restoration. The point of forgiveness is that there would be restoration. And so when we humble ourselves, we have done nothing more than our duty. When we give or receive rebuke, we have done nothing more than our duty. When we repent... We have done nothing more than our duty. When we forgive, no matter how great, listen to me, church, no matter how great the injustice committed was, when we forgive, we have done nothing more than our duty. When we are walking out restoration, we are doing nothing more than our duty. Jesus is very purposeful here in the way he is teaching his disciples about the subject. Jesus tells us to say of ourselves, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Have you ever thought, you know what that person did to me? I've had people tell me this before. Pastor, are you asking me to forgive this person? 
And I'll say, yes, I am. I said, now, actually, I'm not asking you. The Bible is commanding you. I can't forget what they've done. I said, I'm not telling you to forget. And the Bible doesn't say forget what they've done, but it commands us to forgive. You may remember the rest of your life, and it may be painful the rest of your life. Forgiveness is not about forgetting, and it's not about no longer having any pain. God will take care of the pain in time. But forgiveness is something we are commanded to give immediately. And so people will say to me, do you, do you understand what they've done to me? I don't have to understand what they've done. Because forgiveness is not conditional upon how great or how small the offense is. Or how close or how distant the relationship was when the offense was committed. Sometimes we act or we think as, as though doing our duty should earn us some special acknowledgement or accolade. But Jesus thinks differently. Jesus says, you don't even owe the servant a thank you when he's come in after a hard day's work in the field and he fixes your supper. You don't even, you don't even owe him a thank you because he is simply doing his duty. Now I say, thank him, that's fine. But the point is, Jesus is saying, you don't owe him. And God does not owe us anything for simply doing what we are commanded to do. Boy, I'm going to have a special place in heaven because I finally forgave that person for what they did to me. Man, I tell you, God's probably got a great reward for me. No, he doesn't. He doesn't even have a thank you for you because you have simply done your duty. You have simply done what he has already done when he forgave you. When you love that person, you are doing nothing more than what he has already done when he loved you. Because if you think that person was bad, you should see how you and I looked in God's eyes before we were saved. And the only reason we're any more tolerable to God now is because he doesn't see us, he sees his son because we've been brought up into the Son. And our identity is not ourself any longer, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, yet it is Christ who lives in me. So it's one thing to receive acknowledgement or accolade. It's another to expect it and to be offended when you don't get it. Listen, doing our duty does not make us profitable. Jesus says, after you've done all that's commanded of you, say of yourself, we are unprofitable servants, for we have done what was commanded us to do. Doing our duty does not make us profitable. But listen, not doing our duty makes us less than unprofitable. Now think about that. We want to think there's something profitable about us doing our duty. But the reality is, we're not profitable because we've done our duty. But if we don't even do our duty, we are not only not profitable, we are less than unprofitable. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be less than unprofitable in God's kingdom. So Jesus sounds harsh, but the reality is he is gracefully reminding us that our duty is humility, rebuke, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And that we are to walk out these things together 
in Christ as one body, joined together in one life. This is how our light shines. This is how our witness is made known. Amen? Now turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Different gospel, same subject. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we read the beginning of Matthew 18. This is where Jesus says, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're going to go down to verse 8. Now, from verse 1 all the way through here, he's talking about offending these little ones. He's talking about having a millstone tied around your neck, just the same as Luke 17. Verse 7, Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now, God has, remember, God's forgiven us in order to bring about what? Reconciliation and restoration between God and man. And so as God has forgiven us, we are to forgive. And this was the point, remember, in Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 6. So we're able to forgive and, and we're commanded to forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven us. Now, this is an interesting scripture, I think. Now, again, Matthew 18, 8. You know, we want to read the first seven verses of Matthew and then we get to Matthew uh, 18, verse 8, and we think Jesus is changing subjects, but he's not. So he says, Matthew 18, 8. Let's read Matthew 18, 8 through verse 10. If your, hand causes, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. So verse, verses 8 through 8 and 9 were not a parenthesis and Jesus is talking about something different. It's all the same subject here. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So here's the reality. None of us live in a vacuum, right? Our attitudes and our actions have an impact on others, good or bad. Everywhere we go, right? I mean, everywhere we go. So in Matthew, in these verses, verses 8 through 10, Jesus is teaching us this truth. And he's saying, what you do matters. Your attitude, your actions, these things really matter. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin or to offend, that word sin there, if your Bible says sin, it's, it's a word that literally is offend. If your hand causes you to sin or to offend, cut it off. If your eye, then pluck it out. And Jesus declares it's better to enter life maimed than it is to be cast into hell whole, Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty graphic. I mean, Jesus is, 
You know, Jesus was not afraid to get down and really talk about, uh, unlike many churches today, you know this is not a popular subject. I mean, we don't, you know, here's, here's what political correctness has done to us today. There's a lot of people that wouldn't even teach on these scriptures because, well, now, you know, Pastor Jeff, I can hear it. You know, if you emphasize that too much, we need to be really careful to let people know that Jesus is not advocating self-mutilization here. Because, you know, there's some people that might, might think that they need to cut their hand off or pluck their eye out because they... And you know what? That's true. There are some people that have uh, mental issues that might totally misinterpret. But let's deal with the truth here, okay? And this is the point of, of teaching these scriptures rather than avoiding these scriptures. We need to teach the scripture in its proper context so that people will have proper understanding, not run away from the scripture because we're afraid of the way some people might take it. Okay? So the process, this, listen, when we're offended, how does offense occur? Jesus, by the way, is not advocating self-mutilization. He's, he's commanding self-examination is what he's doing. Because guess what? Sin or offense doesn't begin with my hand. It doesn't begin with my foot. It doesn't begin with my eye. You know where it begins? It begins in my heart. And this isn't just about guys surfing the computer, watching pornography, or uh, people going out and stealing and shoplifting from Walmart. I just can't keep that hand under control. Every time I go into Walmart, I want to shoplift. Well, cut that thing off, and then you won't be able to shoplift anymore. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. you gotta, you got to stealing problem, or you've got a lust problem because there's an issue in your heart that needs to be dealt with. And Jesus is not saying, cut off your hands and your feet and pluck your eyeballs out. He's saying, examine your heart and find out what the problem is here. This is about heart examination, self-examination. So when an offense occurs, the first thing that should occur is what? We should examine our hearts. We should examine ourselves. The process that Jesus commands that we follow when, we, when an offense or a sin occurs will ensure that both parties involved will be required to examine themselves, to examine their hearts. Now, we're not going to get there today, but we're, we're, we're heading to Matthew 18, verse 15, where Jesus lays out this process of restoration. But before Jesus lays out the process, he's teaching about these things because he wants his disciples, and he wants us to understand the magnitude of, of the issues that he's talking about here. So why is it necessary for us to examine ourselves? Well, it's necessary and good because whether we are the offended or whether we are the offender, we must guard against attitudes that can become destructive and divisive if left unchallenged or unchecked. And this is often seen, we see this a lot in marriages. You know, I, I do premarital counseling, and, and, uh, and so when I do premarital counseling, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about, um, not, not, not that we shouldn't talk about it after you're married, you know, a lot of things in marriages, and I use marriages because it's a good example, it's, a, it's, it's, this, it's seen so often because, you know, what is the marriage? The marriage also is a picture of what? What is marriage? This is, this is also what I teach in premarital counseling. Marriage is what? It's a picture of Christ and his church. 
I mean, Paul gives us the commentary on Genesis 2 in Ephesians 5, and he teaches us what marriage really is. Marriage was not instituted just so men and women could have a physical and emotional relationship. Marriage was instituted because it is a picture of what ultimately would come to pass through Christ and his church. It's a picture of the bride and the bridegroom of Christ and his church, his people. And so uh, when we talk about marriage, we talk about in that relationship, in that most intimate of relationships, a church is one of the most intimate relationships that, that you will enter into. Your marriage, husbands and wives, is simply a picture of this greater thing called the church in Christ. And that's why this is so important. This is why Jesus is teaching on these things. And some of you would think divorce is unthinkable, but separating or breaking fellowship within a body is no big deal. But Jesus says, no, that's not right. It's not right at any level. And so what happens in a marriage oftentimes is these issues are there and they just get swept under the rug. And I always tell people, you know, you sweep something under the rug long enough, you're going to have a bump so big there, one day you're going to trip over it. And you're going to break something. And usually what gets broken is the relationship. And so Jesus is teaching us here, hey, don't just keep denying things. It'd be better for you, I mean, he's using a very graphic example, to cut your hand off, to cut your foot off, to pluck your eye. It's better to sacrifice part of yourself than to cause the whole to be lost. So oftentimes you see this in marriages. I mean, the husband, how many of you men like to be right? I'm going to raise my hand. I like to be right. How many of you ladies like to be right? Every one of those hands ought to go up right now. How many of you men know that's right? That your wife likes to be right? <laughs> yeah. So what happens a lot of times is you get this going on. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. Who was it told me the other day? Irma Bombeck said, never go to bed angry. Stay up and fight all night. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> no. There's got to be... A willingness here. And so what happens a lot of times is this pride and this stubbornness. Who's going to cut their hand off first? Who's going to pluck their eye out first? James says the wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> who's going who's to seek repentance first? Who's going to humble themselves first? But I was right, Pastor Jeff. Well, so was Jesus. And he humbled himself. In this graphic analogy, Jesus is, is telling us that we need to examine our heart. Because offense begins in the heart. And it's our attitudes, it's our mindsets that leads to the offense being given or taken. You know, there's some offenses that just shouldn't be taken. I, I never will forget Kirby Anderson. Was it Kirby? What was Kirby? What's the guy, the black pastor in Houston? We saw him one year at a, a church, at a conference. Y'all got remember him? Kirby Caldwell. 
Kirby John Caldwell, and he talked about offenses. He was talking about him and his wife. Kirby John Caldwell said, he said, it's like a, it's like a, a hook. And he said, my wife throws that thing at me. And he, he took his jacket off and he threw his jacket against the wall and his jacket just kept falling down the wall. He said, but if there was a hook there on that wall, when I throw my jacket, that jacket's going to hang. He said, that's what happens when my wife throws these things at me. He said, I don't like it. I get upset. He said, but the fact that it's hanging on something tells me there's something there for it to hang on. And this is, remember, I used the analogy a few weeks ago about the nails that used to be in the wall that we'd put the Christmas garland, the Christmas lights on. You walk by every so often, you'd snag your, well, we took all those nails so you wouldn't get hooked. We need to remove the hooks. That things keep getting hung on. Husbands, wives, sometimes, you need to, instead of looking at the other one and saying, well, they're wrong, they're wrong, you need to ask yourself, why, why does that thing keep getting hooked on me? Maybe there's a hook in me that I need to deal with. Yeah, maybe they need to be dealt with too. But sweeping it under the rug, pretending like it doesn't exist, or just waiting until it just, I mean, brings death and destruction is not the way to deal with it. And this is what Jesus is teaching us here in these verses as he's talking about offense and he's talking about forgiveness and he's talking about restoration. Then in verse 10, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so in these verses, Jesus keeps referring to little, little ones. And, and it is a Greek word, a Greek term that, that does refer to literally to little children. But we see that as we begin this chapter in Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about little children, but he's not just referring to little children because he tells his disciples, you must become, you must humble yourself as one of these little ones. And so Jesus is using little children as an analogy. Should we offend little children? Absolutely not. We better not. I mean, Jesus really is serious here about what he's talking about. But he's also saying that we need to become humble like these little children. We need to have childlike faith. The attitude of our heart and the attitude of our minds should be more childlike than like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people of Jesus' day who were opposing him. So he's referring to little children, but he's also referring to those who will humble themselves and become as little children in their hearts and in their minds. And we're told to humble ourselves and in doing that, we must resist the temptation to defend ourselves out of our pride. The youth would play this game, and they would set this rule up, and they would say, you can't defend yourself. Someone says anything to you, you can't defend yourself. Jesus did not defend himself as he went to the cross. I think maybe that's a game that more adults should play. We should just say, you know, let's take a week and let's not defend ourselves. When our wife brings an accusation, when our husband brings an accusation, when our parents bring an accusation, when my friends bring an accusation, let's just, let's just say we're not going to defend ourselves. You know how hard that is to do? You know why it is so hard to do? The temptation, 
The burning temptation to defend yourself, you know where that comes from? It comes from pride. It's your pride that wants you to be right. It's your pride that wants everyone to know, hey, and what is it that we saw in Jesus that was so glaringly missing? He humbled himself. I mean, to the point that his pride was non-existent. How could the Son of God stand there before all of those people and listen to the false accusations and the things that were railed against him and not once open his mouth in defense of himself? That is a man who crucified his pride long before he went to the cross. And this is what Philippians 2.5 commands us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, who became obedient even to the point of death on a cross, who God highly exalted and gave to him the name that is above all names. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, that's hard to do. I like to defend myself. But it's much better to let God exalt us than for us to exalt ourselves. It's much better to let God defend us than for us to defend ourselves. And I know the classic response is always, but now you know, Pastor Jeff, being a Christian doesn't mean we're a doormat. I understand that. But I will also say being a Christian means that we are to be like Jesus. If you want to call Jesus a doormat, go ahead and call him one. I don't know. I don't think he is. If you want to call being a doormat the command to turn the other cheek when one gets struck, to not only give your, your, your coat when asked, but give your shirt also, it's your duty to give your coat. It's not your duty to give your shirt. See, you're, you're nothing profitable about giving your coat when it's asked of you. Nothing profitable about going one mile when you're compelled to go one mile. But Jesus said, I'd say don't go one mile, but go an extra mile. It's your duty to go one mile. Go above and beyond your duty. It's your duty to forgive. Let's go above and beyond our duty. It's our duty to be restored. Let's go above and beyond restoration. Husbands and wives, it's your duty to stay together and, and have an intact home. But that doesn't mean you're going to learn how to survive with one another and tolerate one another. Let's go beyond our duty and let's, let's learn how to love one another so that we create an atmosphere for our children to grow up and see what true love really is. In the home, in the church, in the family, everywhere we go. All right, it's 12 o'clock, I'm going to stop. Everybody say, Amen. Amen. Okay. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to pick up at verse 11, Matthew 18, 11. And Jesus is continuing here. He's not changing subjects again. We're going to talk about the parable of the lost sheep next week. And he, he's not changing subjects. He's on the very same subject. He's talking about restoration. Amen.
Let's stand. Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have so clearly demonstrated your love to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, forgiveness was not lip service with you. Love was not just lip service with you, God. You demonstrated it by sending your Son. Lord Jesus, you demonstrated it by willingly walking that difficult, cruel road, carrying your cross, being nailed to that tree, being humiliated, humbling yourself even to the point of becoming a curse for us on that tree. Lord, we are so thankful that we who are less than deserving have received so much more than we could ever imagine. When you loved us and when you forgave us. Father, when you were in your Son, the Lord Jesus, reconciling the world to yourself, when the world didn't deserve reconciliation. Lord, we are thankful that you have brought reconciliation. You have brought restoration. Lord, as you teach us in your word these very truths and principles that you lived out on this earth and demonstrated in the flesh for us, God, we ask you to help us. Even as the Apostles ask you, Lord, increase our faith. Help us, Lord, to not just talk about these things, but help us, Lord, to walk out these things. Lord, help us to be parents and elders and brothers and sisters and mothers, fathers, husbands and wives who live out this love, who live out this forgiveness, who live out this restoration that you have brought to us. Help us, God, to teach our little ones these truths. Help them, Lord. Help us that they would not grow up seeing our words as one thing and our actions as another. Lord, this is the duty of your church. We can do nothing about any other congregation, but Father, I pray Pray for all congregations, but Lord, I ask that you would help this congregation walk these things out, that we would be a bright light and a strong witness in this community of these truths, of your real love and of your real forgiveness and of your real restoration. Those who are without Christ would see and yearn for that, that the world cannot and will never give them only Christ, only Christ can provide these things. Lord, we thank you that you have provided them. We thank you that we have received them. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never received your love, your forgiveness, who has never come to faith in Christ, I pray, God, today they would make that choice and make that decision. And if that is anyone here, I invite you to come and talk with me and pray with us at the end of this service. Amen. Lord, be blessed and be glorified through your people. We thank you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a good hand. God bless you.